Hey everybody, welcome back to the Elevated Project Podcast. This is going to be episode number 39. Today we have Bill Campbell, PhD and physique scientist. He's out of the University of Florida. Puts out phenomenal research on physique athletes and protein and refeeds and all sorts of good stuff. Christine and I get into some details of some of his recent research. I think you guys will find this podcast extremely enlightening. I hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Elevated Project Podcast. I'm Mike Costelli and with me I have Christine Andali. Jamie Granville is missing in action. She's doing a figure competition up in Calgary, but we have a very special guest with us today. We have Bill Campbell. How are you doing today, Bill? I'm doing great. Thank you for thank you for having me. Oh, we're, we're excited to have you on today. So we've already sort of gotten into a little bit about the protein and I know that's your gig. So before we get into some of that research that you've done, um, why don't you tell people about who you are and what you do and how long you've been doing it? Sure. So I'm a professor at the University of South Florida, which is located in Tampa, Florida. I direct the Performance and Physique Enhancement Laboratory, and I've been doing that for the last 13 years. Prior to that, I was in in sales i used to sell herbicides and pesticides so it was killing weeds killing bugs that was my uh, my job out of college and i did that my, my undergraduate degree was in marketing and I, that was my first job and i didn't love it i loved at that time bodybuilding and sports nutrition so i i remember reading a quote somewhere and i don't remember where i read it but it said if you you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? I should maybe, maybe I should consider a career change. So I did, I started on that path um, in my early 20s. It wasn't until I was 28 that I actually started a master's degree in exercise physiology. So a lot of years of getting all my science classes and having to, you know, um, provide for myself during that time. Right. I got married at about that same time. I think I was 20, 28 or 29. Uh, I was 28. So new career, new wife, and I haven't looked back since, since that, since that decision, well, the decision was years before, but after the master's degree, I got a PhD at Baylor University. And my dream was to have my own lab. And I'm, I'm very blessed by God. I, I I do direct my own uh, performance and physique enhancement lab. And I, it's, I, I am just, I cannot imagine one, I can't imagine being in a different country. I mean, the freedoms that we have, the uh, just any, just if you think about being born in any other time and throughout human history, like we've won the lottery. Uh, and you guys are um, Canada, North America. Where where are you? Yeah, so I'm in. Uh, well, actually, we're both from Canada, but Christine is now dual. But yeah, I'm I'm just south of Calgary in Lethbridge, so that's just a little bit north of Montana. Yeah, I'm in Michigan. Okay. Okay. So I'll broaden my 
my um, scope and say North America. It's just I feel so blessed to 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 you know just this this time. Um, I wake up every day very happy. So that's that's the background. Cool. Cool. So I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, yeah. When I started, I had hair. <laughs> <laughs> right on. I mean, I think I think a lot of our listeners will probably know who you are um, because of social media, right? Um, and, and that's something I, I want, I want to dig into because it's like, I remember, I don't remember how I came across your Instagram profile, but I just remember it was, it was the format of a question. And I don't remember what the question was, but it was a question, a graphic with a question about protein and sort of a multiple choice answer. And then right at the, in the caption, it was like, and the answer to the question is, and it was like, Ooh, I got to click on this boom. And it's like, Oh, cool. And then there's a spiel about, you know, what the, what the question was about. And I'm like, this is like really awesome because this is like evidence-based, you know, yeah. nutrition science in a really easy to read format. And right away, I'm like, this is, this is really good. And it seems like that, um, that mode of posting has really worked for you. So tell me about how you jumped on to social media. Yeah. And I actually, I love talking about this. So thank you for asking. Uh, probably three years ago, and up until that time, I hated social media. I still do. Um, I, I really like what I do on Instagram. Right. I remember talking to Lauren Conlon. She was a student of mine. Um, Amy Best, uh, Kate Callahan. So these were students of mine. And I remember thinking, or I remember a specific conversation with Lauren Conlon. I'm like, okay, so you you do this Insta, uh, Instagram thing. And, um, and it was Instagram for her. Mm-hmm. And I said, and, and you have to respond to all these questions. She goes, yeah, that's what you do. And I'm like, who, I, will, I could never, why would I do that? I've got, you know, 80 emails a day that I respond. I can't imagine then going home and responding to people from, you know, Bangladesh and, and Iowa. Like, it's just crazy to me. So had no interest in it. And as time moved on and I'm, I'm not young, but I realized the industry's changing, the profession is changing. So I said, okay, I need to adapt. And I remember asking anybody and everybody, okay, I'm gonna do something with social media. Should I do Twitter? Should I do Facebook? And I got the, the Facebook for Dummies book. I bought the uh, Twitter for Dummies book. I, I just, you know, things that I thought, oh, I better read up. And I had a conversation with somebody and they said, if you're in fitness, Instagram's probably the, the one that you should focus on. And, and then of course, other people said, do them all, do YouTube, do, do. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not going to do that because (laughs) that is not how my mind works. I have to divide and conquer. So um, I said, I'm going to, Uh, I remember telling my wife, um, and in my career, you have two big promotions. You get tenured, and then you can become a full professor. And when you become a full professor, there's really no other stepping stone in academia. And I told my wife, once, if I'm blessed enough to get full professor, I have to fundamentally change how I approach my day, because I don't want to keep doing the same thing as I see the profession moving in this direction. So I made a decision. I'm going to prioritize Instagram. But then it was, okay, well, how do I do that? And I remember thinking, I want to do something different. 
I, I do not have model looks. I don't, I'm not in the kind of shape that you're in, Mike. So it's not like I'm going to be promoting my, my physique. My, now I've got an okay physique for, for something <laughs> I, I work on, but it's not going to compete with most Instagram people right. in the space. And I remember thinking, you know, no, I've never seen anybody do a true false question or multiple choice question. I'm a professor. I write them, you know, practically, you know, every day, practically for my students. So I knew it would be text-based and I, that's, I just said, I'm, I'm, this is how it's going to work. And it, for whatever reason, it's taken off. It, it, people have liked it. Um, it's the first thing I do in the morning. Like I said, when I, when I told my wife, I need to fundamentally change what I'm doing professionally. I was serious. And, and that's, that's what I do. It's, 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 I have a strategy, a, you know, I don't, um, I know I, uh, just to be clear, I do a true false, a multiple choice. And then what I call other, whether that's promoting this, like, hopefully I can make a, if you can make it easy for me, cause I'm not good at Instagram, but if you can send me some post, I would love to repost it on my Instagram. Totally. So I know how to post. I'm not real good with stories or I don't have, I, I have a swipe up feature. They tell me, but I've never used it. I don't know how to do that. Um, so I, I guess things that I think have worked for me, I respond to, I'm going to say everybody, there might be a person or two. Now I don't always respond with a, a dialogue, it, um, but you know, thanking people for, for sharing it, um, answering questions, um, that, that's kind of been the, the process and it, and it, it has worked for me. So do you post every day? My intent is to post Monday through every day, but Sunday. And again, one thing that makes it easy, it's Monday, true, false, Tuesday, multiple choice, Wednesday, other, true, false, multiple choice, other. So I don't have to sit there and stress about, well, what am I going to do today? Like, I know the format, the, the moment I wake up. Um, so I don't have that stress. And I have the, you know, it's just the PowerPoint template. So that's already done. I don't have to think about that. So it's very efficient. And the huge advantage I have is I've been a professor for 13 years. I've written multiple textbooks, lectures. So my content, I've already done over 10 years. And I try to tell my students this. It's like, I've worked for a long time to develop this educational content that you guys don't have the privilege of the, you know, the life experience to do that yet. So I have a huge advantage. And having a PhD, deserved or not, I'm given instant credibility, whether or not I deserve it. So that helps. So I do have advantages. Uh, but if we're going to admit it's just text and questions, that's not very sexy. No. But how, like, so every day, like, what, how do you come up with the question? Like, are you just pulling randomly? Like, you're just thinking of something or? It's always in the realm. I, I kind of look at it as um, it's either going to be physique related. And with that, it's either going to be muscle gain, fat loss, or sports nutrition. Those are the only areas that I really stick to. And it's funny, with my, with my prior degree in marketing, one thing I learned is let your audience um, let your audience give you feedback. Right. And one thing I love to, to talk about and post about is like success. Like I like personal productivity. I like uh, successful mindset stuff. Those are the podcasts I listen to. So I've done a few posts on that and people, I get zero engagement. They're like, Bill, shut up. We don't care about <laughs> about success just feed me a multiple choice question that's what we want from you so i learned i let the market speak to me 
even though I like to talk about successful mindsets and how to be a professional fitness person, nobody wants that from me for whatever reason. Well, yeah, I've never seen, I don't think I've seen anyone else do the, the multiple choice. Like you're the only one. So that was such a smart move. It is. Yeah. And you know, one thing is um, obviously that format has resonated with people. And I think it's, it's like, it's easily digestible information coming from, and you said it from an insanely credible source. And that's really the one downside with social media or, or anything on the internet. You just never know what is credible and what isn't. There's so much bro science out there. Without a doubt, reading your 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 research, it's like, okay, there's zero bro science in here. We're talking like legit evidence-based science. And just the format obviously works. And I was saying to Christine earlier, it's like, I've seen people... Um, copy your 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 mode of what you do it's like it's like the multiple choice and then the answer is and i'm like hey that that's bill's format what do you think you're doing that but it's i understand why people do it right so and and the thing with the how you do that is from a, a growth standpoint an engagement standpoint how many times something is shared like that creates engagement that creates growth on your part and you make it so awesome for like nutrition coaches like to post something like that to show like real evidence behind something and but then you also put it in simple form so that you know the general people can understand it so that it's just such a good good way to go about things yeah Yeah. and I have noticed other people mimicked it. Now, again, did I invent the multiple choice question? No, but I've been doing it for, I guess we're coming close to a year and a half to two years. I, I know my content. I've written the books. I've written the articles. I already have the template. You, people would, I, it's, it's amazing to me how much time that it takes me to do what those posts look like. And they look simple and hopefully they do look simple. Hopefully it looks like, oh, that was 10 minutes. It's, oh, it's yeah. an hour to two yeah. of every morning getting it to that point. Cause I always take the maximal space. Right. It has to be in an engage or a, a, a reader friendly format. So I'm not, I can't use scientific terms. Right. So yes, I have seen other people do it. They won't keep doing it because it's, I don't, I don't think they have the, the, the stick And if they do great, that's, that's, right. I, I want everybody to succeed in the fitness space, but it's a lot more time. And that doesn't even count the engagement. Mm-hmm. right exactly i know instagram posts take a long time yeah and that's actually a topic that we talked yeah. about a lot on this podcast about social media because everything because we do a lot of remote coaching and obviously social media is our platform but christine and i and jamie we're often like sometimes we're banging our heads against the wall about social media and there's times you just want to throw your phone away you're just like oh my god i don't have time for this right yeah. but, uh, like you said that's actually I appreciate you saying that because it takes a lot of time to put a well-written post together, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. And let's look at another advantage I have. I'm a professor. I have a paycheck. Whether or not I post or not, Mm -hmm. I get a paycheck, which is why I chose this career. I am not like you guys. I would struggle with being an entrepreneur, having an unsteady paycheck. But I, again, I think, and I tell my students, I don't think you have a choice. If you're going to have, especially if you're an online coach, if you don't have social media, I mean, that is probably half the job. It is now for sure. For sure. So Um, once you post and then, you know, you engage a little bit, do you go on social media outside of that? Or is it just like in the morning? 
So I, so I'll give an example. Like I posted this morning Mm -hmm. and I'll spend like, then I'll go from, so I get up usually around six, right to my office, especially during COVID. I haven't been coming into work, but right to my office, I do my post. I'll be done by eight. I'll stay for five or 10 minutes and answer whoever asked the question quickly. Then I go for a quick run, one mile run or a mile walk. I am not really like, like doing it, but I do. Um, I come back, sit in front of my fan, engage for another five or 10 minutes while I'm cooling down, get my shower. Phone is away until lunch. I'll gauge again. Then I'll engage at night. I do. I follow as few people as possible. I do not consume in like, I'm not on Facebook. I do almost no consuming. And, and I've learned over time. That's just, I don't have the time to consume. Right. Um, so my, um, now again, I have the luxury. It's probably, it may be better for some people to do some consuming to, 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 to get ideas or to engage. Um, I just don't, it's, I'm focused on my content and getting it out. Um, and I'll also say this, when I started, my game plan was, I, I literally said, I'm going to message 50 people every day and just ask them to follow me. Like I had no shame. I didn't, I actually didn't do it. And I'll tell you why I didn't do it, but that was my plan. I was going to go like posts, searching the hashtags. I was going to have a true ground or um, what do you call it? The grassroots plan to get my following up. And there's two things. Um, one, I leveraged some of my social capital. So I, I have um, like Lane Norton, Brad Schoenfeld, Brett Contreras, Sohi Lee, Lauren Conlon, people like that I've known for years. And I had done things for them, spoken at their conferences for free, um, helped them with, you know, just some research stuff. And then when I started my social media, I, you know, I, I asked or they just offered, hey, follow Bill. So that helped to an extent early on. But my plan was, okay, I'm going to spend an hour emailing Sally Smith from Idaho, um, John Roberts from Pennsylvania. I'm just going to just ask people, hey, I'm a scientist. I'm going to put out stuff. Uh, just check it out. Because the format that I did kind of took off, I never actually had to do that. But I wasn't, I don't think anybody should be above that. I, uh, as long as you're putting out good stuff. Right. Yeah, that, that was, yeah, that's. Um, and it's funny, again, I know I said this before, four years ago, I was, I was like, no, I, I, I can't imagine doing this. Um, and let me also say this, because this, this is important. My, my job, we're going through a lot of changes at my university. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's probably not likely, but there's a chance that I won't have a job in a year from now or two years from now. That is a possibility. Because of my involvement in social media, I have options that, because my wife doesn't want to move if I do lose my job. Can I support myself based on some other things? And I think I can. I have other things in play that won't be, that won't actually be available for a year or two. But if I didn't have, if I didn't make this transition, I, we would, if I didn't keep my job, we would have to move and I would have to apply to other universities. Whereas now, at least I think I might have a chance that I could keep my family grounded and not move and just do my own thing. Right. So, nice. I mean, that's, yeah. uh, you know, like I said, you know, <clears throat> I think when we booked this podcast, I remember back in the summer, we were sort of talking about, Hey, we should get Bill Campbell on. I remember looking at your Instagram. I'm like, yeah, we'll check it out. He's got like 40,000 followers and you're sitting at 62 now. So the growth is obviously there. Right. So um, yeah. let's, uh, 
you know, let's switch gears a bit and let's obviously talk about what you do. I mean, obviously you're a social media rock star, but um, let's talk about some of the research you've done. Now you sent some of the research that you've done our way to take a look at, and you've talked about a lot of it on podcasts. Um, Christine and I actually wanted to focus on the refeed and the diet breaks, because this is something that we implement with our client base. And it's not just isolated to, let's say, um, competitive aesthetic based athletes. We utilize this for recreational athletes, for performance based athletes. Um, I mean, why don't we start with, I guess, one of the really interesting studies is the, the five and two. That's what I call it. Anyways, the five and two. So the five days of, uh, of caloric restriction with the two days of the refeed versus the continuous restriction. Um, when you do that, don't you, Bill? Do you do that again? you do that personally? I have done that personally for a long time. Cool. Uh, I, I actually stopped doing that uh, probably in the last three months. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a case study on myself, uh, like a reverse diet thing. And I'm, I'm hesitant to bump up my calories. But yes, for many, many years, that's exactly how I've, I've almost my entire life. I've eaten a lot more on the weekends than during the week. Yeah. I feel like that like goes for a lot of people. Yeah. I know, Christine, you were saying that you just uh, started to utilize or you use this with clients and Jamie actually, before she left was saying she just started to implement this with one of her clients. For me with a client, like it's an adherence thing. Yeah. Like they're really busy during the week they have more time on the weekend. So we adjust them going lower during the week and higher on the weekend and it works. Yeah. And there's science. There's a study that has demonstrated people eat more on the weekends. So kind of a philosophy that I have is dieting is hard. Let's not make it harder. If you naturally want to eat more on the weekend, well, let's build that into the plan. Then you're following the plan instead of failing. Oh, I ate more on the weekend. Well, yeah, great. That's part of the plan. It's a really psychological as well between, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And, and I noticed the same thing. If I'm watching, you know, three football games on Saturday, not, not being busy, man, I'm a lot hungrier. Like I'm just, because I'm focused on eating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, so the study that you did, that was in, that was a 2020 study, correct? Yeah. We published it this, this year in March, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, was there anything, so, so to give, an, maybe I'll give a quick recap, but you might have to jump in and correct me. Um, so you basically had two groups and one was in a continuous deficit and one, you had a five day deficit and then you had two days worth of refeeds. And then for how long, how long was that study for seven weeks of dieting? Seven weeks. Thank you. Yeah. And then you tested things like resting metabolic rate and some hormones like T3, T4, um, leptin. Was there anything surprise? Like, were you, did you know? Did you know what you were going to find when you did this study? No. Um, and the only thing we measured was leptin levels. And I'll talk about that. That was only in a subsample. Okay. Uh, I was surprised that we found any difference because most of my research, it, it tends to be no difference. But even if there's no difference, if one group can increase their calories for two days and the end, rather than not, if that, again, if, um, like Christine said, if that fits their lifestyle, well, that's a win. Even if there's no improvement, I think that's great. 
Mm-hmm. So I was surprised. And the, the one true difference was the group that increased their calories on the weekends, they were able to maintain their dry fat-free mass. That means we took the water out because when you carb up, sometimes you increase water retention and we wanted to control for that. Mm-hmm. That was significantly better than the group who never took a refeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no significant difference between the two groups with resting metabolic rate. But the group that took the refeeds, they did maintain their metabolic rate better than the other group. So it's, it's just a statistical, um, perspective, not different between the groups, but within their, within themselves, they maintain their metabolic rate. And I'll just give the numbers. Their metabolic rate went down 40 calories per day. On average, the other group who didn't take the breaks, it went down 80 calories per day. Right. And so that, that is, that's pretty significant. I I highly value metabolic rate when dieting because it, it's a, to me, it's a key indicator of long-term success and being able to keep the weight off after the diet. I do everything I can to protect metabolism, mm-hmm. um, muscle mass as well. Now, when we lose muscle mass, yeah, you can gain it back more quickly after, if you lose it during a diet, I don't, I don't disregard that, mm-hmm. but I still believe do everything you can to protect muscle mass. There's, there's literature to suggest that that is a direct link to hunger after your diet. So if you can maintain muscle, you have hunger lower. That's huge. Everything about dieting is controlling hunger. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. Do you, so something I was interested in asking was, will you implement diet breaks or refeeds right from the beginning? Or do you, you know, put it in down the road if you start seeing biofeedback going in like in a negative way. Yes, we just completed a a diet break study um, in resistance trained females. So we don't, we didn't publish it yet, but I can talk about that. So um, let let me, let me define the terms. Uh, Typically we use the word, well, let me give this. An umbrella term to describe all of this stuff is called nonlinear dieting. The concept is don't diet for three months, five months, eight months in a row without taking a break. That's the concept of nonlinear dieting. Refeeds are typically defined as a one or two day per week increase in calories, which is what we did in our study, which seemed to protect dry muscle mass better. And when I say increase calories, we increased calories in the form of carbohydrates back to maintenance levels. So it wasn't like this food orgy where they could eat whatever they wanted on the weekend, three pizzas and milkshakes. So they still had to have some level of restraint, but it was a clear break and a clear treat to increase the calories. So refeeds, think of about one to two days per week. A diet break is usually a, an increased caloric intake of a one week, sometimes two weeks in a row. And all of that literature is in the obese population. Um, I'm aware of about approximately five studies. In two of those studies, it seemed to help with weight loss outcomes. In three of the studies, it was no worse. So it never is harmful to take a diet break. Sometimes it's better. In our study, once again, we didn't find an improvement with the diet break in these resistance trained females, but there was no harm. And I can talk about some really cool data from that as well. Yeah. Um, they dieted for two weeks. They took a one-week diet break. Dieted for two weeks, took a one-week diet break. And then they dieted for two more weeks again. 
I think the value of diet breaks increases. They become more valuable the leaner and leaner and the longer a diet goes. So our study was right away, you know, only two weeks initially. But even with that, at least we know that you're not going to do harm. Right. A, a, a common question is, well, I'm scared to lose weight. Won't I offset my gains or, or won't I offset the weight that I've lost if I take a break? And we, I can say based on our data, which is the only study that's been done in a resistance train population that I'm aware of. No, the, the amount of weight gain was about a quarter of a kg, so about half a pound during the week of the break from the diet, so almost trivial, mm-hmm. and at the end of the six weeks, there was no difference between any weight gain or the weight loss was similar between both groups, so even if you take a diet break every third week, there does at the end of six weeks, there is no harm done. Now, let me, let me go back and answer your question. How do I plan this? Yes, I will typically plan it based on some type of biofeedback, which is the scale or fat loss stalling. Mm -hmm. And I think this becomes important. In the obese literature, it seems to be important that diet breaks are prescribed and planned. And I'm going to set that to to, to its alternative. If somebody's dieting and they, they cheat, they you know, they, they stumble, they, they, they didn't drive past the Taco Bell. They stopped at Taco Bell. They could say, oh, I, oh, I shouldn't have had those seven tacos, but all right. Well, you know what? I, I'll just count this as a diet break week. There's something unique, apparently. And again, I'm not an exercise psychologist. There's, there's a big difference between that and having it prescribed and planned where you're not coming at it from a, oh, I failed, I'll call it a diet bake, but rather, oh, this week, I'm planning on increasing my calories. Right. So the way that I would do that with a client is, hey, our plan is if you have two consecutive weeks in a caloric deficit where you're not losing any more weight or fat if you're measuring that, then let's plan, let's, right now, you know, if there's two straight weeks, let's take a diet break where we'll increase the calories for a week. Got it. Mm-hmm. That's, um, you know, it's interesting when you, when you talk about this, I think about um, my, my client base and what we, what I've done over the years with them. And, you know, it's like everybody sort of responds differently. And, and when I, when I talk to my clients about refeeds, I sort of explain it like this. I'm like, you know, there's three, really three ways we can do this. We can do a cheat meal or a cheat day. We could do a free day, which is like untracked eating, whatever. And then we could do a calculated refeed. And it really depends on the athlete, how you apply those. I really don't like the whole cheat concept just because of the psychology around it. But I've had some clients that I do the five and two, and I've had some clients that I do two tight weeks and then one big diet break. Um, Christine will know who this is. Travis Williams was like that. He, I used to have to do two weeks with him of like very tight controlled. And then he would do like yeah. a football Sunday and just blow it up. Right. And then he'd be back on track. Right. But it was, it's more, it almost seems like it's more of a compliance thing for, for how that's going to work. And I think from a psychology point of view, and I'm not a sports psychologist either, but I think having somebody prescribe it one, it seems more controlled. Two, they're being told what to do versus it's like, oh, I messed up and I had the seven tacos, right? right? Yeah. But um, it's interesting from 
I, I had this question in my mind and you can probably shed some light on this from like the concept about metabolic adaptation gets thrown around a lot, right? And it's, it's obvious now with the science we have, we can test this, right? We can, we can see if there's actually metabolic adaptation going on. And you hear from some authorities that it's like, no, it doesn't happen. It's insignificant. There's the Minnesota starvation study and blah, blah, blah. And then other authorities will be like, no, you know, I've seen it, you know, empirically or anecdotally within my client base. It's like, we see metabolic adaptation happen. Um, within your study here, it's like, we're talking 40 calories versus 80 calories of like a reduction in the resting metabolic rate. Like what's your, what's your overall thought on how often or significant metabolic adaptation happens in somebody who's doing, let's say caloric restriction for a long period of time. Well, the way that we measure if it's happened is to measure resting metabolic rate, which is about 75% of your metabolism. So that's, that's how I'm defining it. Mm -hmm. It clearly happens. And the, the strategies that you can use are, you know, long, slower weight loss plans. So a slower rate of weight loss, higher protein diets, resistance exercise during the diet. Um, so those are the, those are the things. And you make a good point. The whole reason that refeeds and diet breaks are potentially effective is because of the recognition of metabolic adaptation. If there's no such thing as metabolic adaptation, then there's no point to do a diet break or refeed. Right. Yeah. So, and, and again, the negatives of dieting are uh, the two worst things are severe caloric deficits for a long period of time. You are just asking to to come out of that that approach on the wrong side what we would say fat overshoot you're going to have more fat than what you started with within a relatively short period of time right the issue with so many people <laughs> yes we see it a lot yeah. in the recreational population for sure hey i wanted to ask you a question um regarding the refeeds um, you talked about in, in your study, it was a two day carb refeed. And, you know, in, in the abstract, I have it up in front of me here. It says preserves fat-free mass, dry fat-free mass and RMR. Um, what's your thought or have there been any studies regarding, um, let's say refeeds of carbohydrate versus fat? Let's say, Not if, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Not that I'm aware of. I don't believe they've, they've looked at that. Now, maybe they haven't. I, I'm not aware of it. The, the reason that carbohydrate, the reason that we chose carbohydrates was there was a three, the only thing I could find was like a three day overfeeding in females who were maybe even postmenopausal and an increased leptin levels. So mm -hmm. we know dieting causes a decrease in leptin. So that was the theory behind it. Now this, the whole leptin thing might be, it may be overplayed immensely. Uh, it might not. Um, we did, if, if we had enough money for that study, what we would have done was measure leptin levels before the refeed on Friday. And then Monday after the refeed to see, did, did we get a jump? But we only tested leptin at the beginning and the end of the seven weeks, which just told us, yep, it's lower. You lost fat. Your calories were lower. Right. So we really couldn't test just based on finances. What would have been the best question? Um, but I will say, don't I, the whole leptin thing might might be a little bit overplayed. Um, and I think we'll know in a few years as more people are doing research in this area. Right. 
and as it becomes easier to test yeah yeah it'd be nice if we had like a little fingerprint or fingerprint finger prick capillary blood spot test you could just instantly do leptin and be like oh cool you can see yeah. the results um i had another question you kind of evaporated um i don't know what it was um so what do we see? What else do we have here for your research? I mean, we sort of hit a lot on the refeeds um, from an from a practical application point of view. Um, Christine, what do you see our biggest? I guess as coaches, what do you see our biggest struggle is with the refeeds? I know I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> I don't really feel like I have like struggles with the refeeds. I think clients respond really well to them. To be honest. Yeah. I was just more curious on like, I don't, I, I go back and forth with in, incorporating them right from the beginning or incorporating them later on down the road. Um, and like how often, like, is it every seven days? Is it, is it like mm. every 10 days? Is it two days? Um, so I've been going, I haven't actually incorporated it right off the top yet, but I want to now. Um, I have just started to incorporate it once I see things kind of like biofeedback, like sleep, like stuff like that kind of going a little bit wonky. Yeah. Um, but I mean, my clients, like they love it, but I, I put them in strategically. I don't let them just go crazy. Yeah. yeah. And let, let me also um, say the, the refeeds, they do need to be back to maintenance calories. Right. A lot of people, even on a diet break, they'll be like, well, I don't want to go back to maintenance. I still want to be in a deficit. No, we're trying to prevent metabolic adaptation. Don't short circuit this. There's a reason. So the research would indicate if you're going to do this, go back to maintenance, you know, the, the, the pre-diet calories. Mm -hmm. Don't continue to be in a caloric deficit. Yeah. And, and something I want to ask actually is because like a while back, my boyfriend was working with a nutrition coach and like, I was very, you know, I knew about the refeeds and all of that. Um, but the way he went, I think I asked you about this, Mike, the way his coach at the time went about a refeed was like, he would drop protein, drop fat. I'm pretty sure, which I've seen before, but calories would still stay the same. And he just like increased like to like 500 carbohydrates. And it was all, he was basing it around leptin levels. And I'm like, but like the point of a refeed is to bring you out of that deficit for, you know, X amount of time or like a diet break. So I'm curious to hear your like opinion on that. Yeah. It's, the goal is to go back to maintenance levels. Yeah. Now that's a moving target. If you've lost eight pounds since you started, maybe your maintenance levels are now lower. What we did was we just brought them back. Even in week seven, we brought them back to their maintenance calories mm -hmm. before they started the diet. Um, so yeah. And then, I mean, coaches can have a thousand different iterations, right. but the, 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 the principle is, Bring it back to maintenance levels, primarily in the form of carbohydrates. At least yeah. that's what my research would support. Right. One yeah, other yeah. thing, yeah, bodybuilders on. critique this stuff and say, well, it doesn't give you an advantage, so I'm not going to do it. And again, I go back to saying, yes, I, I don't think you should do a refeed or a diet break and expect magic to happen. You might not get a benefit, but if there's no harm and it right. helps adherence, 
Why would you not do that? 100%. Like, why wouldn't you eat higher calories? Like, it's a break. It's fun. Like, uh, yeah, I was just confused because he wasn't, he was keeping, like, he was in the deficit. He was at like 2,300 calories or whatever he was at. And he was just keeping the calories there, um, but lowering the other macros and just like skyrocketing carbs. So I'm just like, okay. Yeah, that's more of like just the macro manipulation versus yeah. calories are the same. I mean, I, you know what? I'll occasionally do that with clients, but it, it generally doesn't have a very big impact, right? If, if the total calories are about the same. But yeah. um, hmm. hey, well, One other thing that's important yeah. to, to appreciate with the refeed study, those subjects, well, let, let, let's look at the group that didn't do the refeeds. They reduced their calories by 25%. Every day, Monday through Sunday, mm-hmm. the other group had to diet harder Monday through Friday to afford them the opportunity. So they reduced their caloric their caloric deficit by thirty five percent Monday through Friday, so that on Saturday and Sunday, when we brought it up to a hundred percent, it was still an average of a twenty five percent caloric reduction. So we controlled for the total calories in that study. So I want to make sure that point's known as well. Um, you might have to diet a little harder during the week. But that's where I think some clients will respond great to that. Mm-hmm. And some people would say, you know, I'd rather just be a little hungrier on the weekend than having to diet so hard Monday through Friday. So that's, that's where the communication with the client, I think, is, is very important. Yeah, right? oh, absolutely. For sure. For sure. Um, you know, I, I dug up the study and it's, it's not one of yours, but it's, I think it's worth talking about. This is something I've had in my PowerPoint for a while when I talk about refeeds and it's, the effect of short-term carbohydrate or fat overfeeding on energy expenditure and plasma leptin concentrations in healthy female subjects. This is from this is from 2000. So, what's going on there? Everybody still there? Yeah. Okay. No, I just had a full, I just had a call come in, and I was like, "Oops." Oh. <laughs> I zoom. Um, but uh, basically, to go through it, and I won't go through the whole study. It's a, I'll just read the conclusion. With carbohydrate overfeeding, but not fat overfeeding, increases energy expenditure and leptin concentration. And I think this, I mean, this is an old study from 20 years ago, right? And I, I don't know the controls or anything about the study. Was it a three-day overfeed? Let me take a look. Yep, that's the one. Yep. Yeah, 10. I think that's the one that we based our two-day, or it, it informed our decision to use carbohydrates. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, because this is like, it's a small, small amount. It's like 10 healthy, lean females were studied during a three-day isoenergetic diet. And it was like three days of carb overfeeding or three days of fat overfeeding. And I only have the abstracts. So I don't have the exact, you know, grams that they did and how many calories and whatnot. But when I, when we talk about refeeds, oftentimes we get the question from our clients, you know, if we're going to do a refeed and it's going to be a calculated refeed, we're like, okay, here's your macros. This is going to be the, the refeed. And it's predominantly carbohydrates. And let's say their fat remains the same. All of a sudden we're increasing their carbs you know, fairly significantly. And people are like, oh, can't I just have more fat too? Because obviously that makes it a lot easier and a lot tastier to do, right? But I usually utilize this study to say, hey, you know what? We want to increase carbs for a specific reason, right? But um, I I just wonder if it would be that detrimental to increase fat in uh, refeed. I mean, like I said, I, I think what I would do in that case is is to explain, hey, there's evidence to suggest that carbohydrates are going to increase leptin more. That might help with your hunger. 
but let's do this. You get a turn and I get a turn and let's just see what happens. You're, we're going to do fat one week. That'll be your turn. We'll do carbs one week. And the reality is you're probably not going to see much of a difference, but if they said, Oh, I just love the high fat. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to err on the, the adherence side because for sure the, the, the science is great, but if you can't follow it or it's miserable, <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now let me also say, if this is somebody that's a competitor that needs to step on stage, then there's not as much of these conversations that you have to do what you have to do. But, yep. um, and we don't know we've, we've that was one study over three days in females they weren't training it wasn't over seven weeks maybe we find that fat does the same thing over seven weeks so um but i yeah i I would agree with you if we're going to choose one let's go with what the available science has but um i'd try both and, and get their get their subjective feedback um let me see we're coming up almost on an hour here and i know we wanted to keep it super tight for an hour there's like a million other things i would want to talk about you know, you got uh, that post comp study, that eight to 10 week follow up of natural competitors. I, I wanted to get into that because that's exactly where Jamie is going to be within like a week. She's going to be post competition from the ah, competition yeah. she's doing. And I know, I know she was pretty wrecked last year. So uh, that would be a good one. Maybe we'll have to have you on again to talk about that. But um, why don't we, in closing, we, you know, before we started the podcast, I kind of threw the whole concept of um, protein resistance your way. And have you seen or read or heard any literature regarding protein resistance in, let's say, athletic populations? No, and, and let me define protein resistance just so I can make sure we're talking about the same thing. Okay. It's, I think I normally would call it anabolic resistance, but as people age, they become less sensitive to a, a given amount of protein such that they almost have like a reduced or dampened muscle protein synthetic response. Is, is, are we saying the same thing? Exactly the same thing, you bet. Yep, nailed it. So, so and I have not seen that in an athletic population. Uh, obviously I, I see the research and I don't really have any clients now, so I'm not working with individual clients at this time. It clearly the research would indicate it happens in elderly people or as people age, and that can be offset with higher protein intakes to, to a large extent. Uh, what causes that? I don't know for sure because it's not my primary area, but I believe it's just a natural consequence of aging. It's the muscle being less sensitive. Right. To, and I, so I don't think it's the fact that people have had high protein intakes their entire, let's say the last 20 years, and that has caused in the dampened effect. Now that can happen with other things. It's like a, like a down regulation, exactly. but I, I don't believe that happened. I don't think that's the reason that as we age, I think it's a, a, an, a maging muscle consequence, not a, I had high protein for 10 years consequence. No, I've screwed up my protein muscle synthesis. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, the reason I throw that out there is it's, I've seen more people talking about it. It doesn't necessarily mean it's based in anything. You know how those circles of talk can be. Um, I mean, I haven't seen it in my clients per se. Um, when I think about it, you know, when I've read about it in aging populations, I'm like, okay, let's define an aging population because I'm 47. Does that mean instead of 220 grams of protein, I'm going to need 250 or am I going to need 300 grams? Like what happens if I want to, 
put on a lot of lean body mass? Like, will I need a lot more than I'm eating? Or is this like 65, 70, 80 year old, you know, population, right? Um, I know, you know, based on your research, um, I do utilize a lot of protein within my clients. And I think Christine does the same thing. Uh, we try to get people to eat a lot of protein. Um, and athletes coming in for consults, it's usually not an issue. But if you get a recreational or a very novice athlete coming in and, you know, 200 pound guy eating 70 grams of protein, it's like, you know, we're trying to get that upregulation happening. But um, I, I'm going off on a tangent there. Um, one, I want to ask you one thing before we finish. Giver, giver. What are, is your opinion on this protein and kidney issue? Because people come to me like talking about this and like asking about it and there's there's science like all over the place about it so what is your take on like people saying that a high protein diet has negative um you know a negative response on your kidney function i'm not aware of any research to suggest that high protein diets have an adverse effect on kidney health in healthy people if somebody yeah. has kidney disease, right, probably not a good choice. Right. Um, now that being said, I I don't I want to be right. The last thing I want to do is tell people eat high protein because that's what I do. I tell people if yeah. if you're trying to optimize your physique, yeah. you need higher protein intakes. Right. The last thing I want to do is is tell somebody to do something that's harmful for their kidneys. Right. It's, that would be horrible. So I don't want to be wrong. But all of the evidence, when they've looked at an intervention-based study, hey, healthy people, we're going to increase protein for the next year and track your kidney function, your um, GFR rates, your uh, enzymes, like your liver enzymes. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's never, it's, I'm not aware of, of it ever coming back and like, oh, that, that's not good. Right. So I'm basing my opinions on that. And if we want to get technical, sarcopenia is is we know that's harmful when you're older when you have a loss of functional and muscle mass yeah. well if we can build up muscle when you're younger and maintain it well now maybe we've combated sarcopenia and protein is part of that yeah. so i mean i go i go as far as to say to my students on the first day of class in my sports nutrition class if you can bring me one study that shows that high protein intakes are harmful or unhealthy in a healthy person, you get an A for the class. I don't even need to see you anymore. <laughs> I've never been able to do that yet. And the reason I do that is I want to know. I right. don't want to, I, I've got kids. Yeah. I, I kind of go out of my way to make sure that they get more protein than what they would naturally totally. consume. Like I, you know, I put in their fruit smoothies, I put tasteless whey in there. <laughs> um, oh. Yep. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Maddie and Kenzie, they got whey protein in their oatmeal this morning. So, nice. oh yeah. All the time. Um, I needed to ask that question. That was a great question, Christine. Um, and that <laughs> actually need, triggered something. People need to hear that because it's constantly coming up. I'm like, no. Yeah, it's funny how that is a myth that just, yeah. it won't die. And I don't know why yeah. it's getting perpetrated, whether it's, I mean, I'm not going to blame a specific population or, you know, conventional medicine, oh. your doctor. Um, but <laughs> Wow, it seems to come up all the time and it's like it's one we're always busting and it's yeah. nice to hear somebody with a phd saying yeah no it's fine right it's like i've never seen any research that is bad so that's good yeah i think the argument is you're making the kidneys work harder 
by having more protein, which is true. But you know what? Your, your mitochondria works harder when you exercise. So maybe we should slow down. Let's not tax the mitochondria as much. Uh, or the heart, you know, the heart really speeds up when exercising. Eh. <laughs> right. Yeah, you've yeah. only got so many beats in your life. So you want to go, right? So, um, yeah. yeah, it's funny how those myths get out there like that. Um, yeah, one last thing before you go. I wanted to actually, Christine triggered this in my head. Um, you had posted something about in in one of your classes, you had a challenge to see how many people could eat. Um, it was 2.2 grams per kilo, one gram per pound body weight. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the answer was only 50% of your class was able to do that. Is that, is that right? Did I get that right? Yeah, that's, that's about, that was based on this year's class. I did it in my graduate class. I find that so surprising, especially in students who are learning about, you know, they're, they're probably all athletes. I, I just found that totally surprising. Were you surprised by that number? Well, no, only because I've been doing it for a while in my classes. Now, we also have a, you know, maybe 10% of our, my students are foreign. And right. foreign, at least what I've noticed in foreign students, their protein levels are small. They, it's, I mean, just Americans in general have higher protein intake. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, somewhat, now some of them got close. I, I, you know, I made my, if I would have said within 10%, it probably would have gone up to 65%. But I, you know, I made it a hard cutoff. Right. Um, also, I don't like correlation studies. I, I actually don't rely on them at all. But if you look at if 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 when people play the correlation game, uh, they might say this is back to the protein being unhealthy. Mm -hmm. They might say, well, look, um, the the death rates are rising and protein intakes are rising. Well, that's not true. If you look at like like in our country, United States. Protein levels have gone up and up and up and up for the last 50 years. The life expectancy has almost had a direct relationship. So I wouldn't say this, but I, if I wanted to be a smart ass, I could say, well, look, it's a direct <laughs> relationship, more protein, longer lifespan. Right. So that's how correlation is often played. And you can make correlation say anything you want, oh, yeah. but I have the graphs that I, you know, that I show people when the, when, when they start using correlation with protein, I'm like, well, I want to live longer. Do you? <laughs> right. Yeah, correlation doesn't equal causation. That's a big one for sure. Yeah. Every, yeah. Time there's a, every time there's a house fire, there's firefighters there. I mean, those firefighters must be burning houses down, right? <laughs> yeah. The way it goes, it's correlation. Hey, yeah. they need a job. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Bill, I want to thank you very much for your time. This was awesome. Um, We'll hopefully have you on again because there's always oh. so much to talk about. So, I thought you, I thought you were cutting out there for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think we're good. We think we're good. So, um, if people want to get a hold of you, oh, are you? Is everybody still there? Yes. Okay. Yep. I just got the message saying my connection's unstable. Um, so before my internet blows up, if if anybody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best place to do that? So, did you ask where people can find me? Yep. Sorry. My, yeah, my, uh, yeah. my internet's blowing up. Yeah. Where's the best place people can find you? Um, pretty much the only place is Instagram and that's right. at Bill Campbell, PhD. Cool. Uh, just in closing, let me thank, uh, my, my research coordinator, John Amastrofini. She's my master's student. She kind of runs my lab. 
Um, I also want to thank Legion Athletics. They've they've given they've donated some money to my lab so that I can do some of this research. So that's been very helpful as well. Right on. Excellent. Well, thanks for your time, Bill. And I hope uh, everybody jumps on your Insta and makes you more of a Instagram rock star and you keep pumping out the good content. Oh, thank you so much. And I really, I really appreciated the questions. Um, this yeah. was, this was fun. I like talking about social media stuff. Mm -hmm. Right on. Perfect.